yeah. I don't hang in my hood, but I'm banging my hood. I'm affiliated. You see, I'm real with my, but I kill for my. I'm affiliated. Grew up in the turf, love doing work. I'm affiliated. See, I don't hang in my hood, but I'm banging my hood. I'm Good morning and welcome to episode 954 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our supporters on Patreon and Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I am Bellenberg of The Ringer, joined by Sam Miller, Baseball Prospectus. Hello, Sam. Hey, Ben. And those of you who have read our book, The Only Rules It Has to Work, are familiar with our two guests today. When Sam and I were running the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league team in the Pacific Association last summer, we signed a bunch of players off a spreadsheet, sight unseen, based on their college stats. And two of the best players we signed were Santos Saldivar and Dylan Stoops. We picked them up at midseason. They came in and were great. They dominated the league. And then, much to our delight, they were subsequently signed by major league organizations. So as promised, we are talking to both of them today now that the minor league season is over. So first, I'm going to greet Santos Saldivar. He is a right-handed pitcher who was a guest on episode 888 of this podcast when he was signed by the Brewers back in May. He was assigned to Helena in the Pioneer League. Hey, Santos. Welcome back. Hey, how you doing? And now I'm going to greet Dylan Stoops, a left-handed pitcher who, as we announced on the show not long ago, was signed by the Padres and got a little action in toward the end of the season with Lake Elsinore in the California League. That's high A. Hello, Dylan. Hey, how's it going, guys? All right. So uh, since we had Santos on already to talk about the signing story and all of the feelings he was feeling at the time, Dylan, do you want to sort of summarize your season and what you were doing before you got the call and how you felt during and after the call? Yeah, absolutely. So I was in the Frontier League playing with the Traverse City Beach Bums. It was the end of a long losing season, (laughs) and it looked as if I was going to be traded to a playoff contender. And on a drive home one night, I got a phone call from my manager, and I thought it was, you know, the dreaded pack your bags. And it turned out that the San Diego Padres had just called him and asked if, I would be interested in in joining up with them for the rest of the season and they would purchase my contract. So um, a lot of emotions flooded me at that point. Uh, He he had told me not to tell too many people. It wasn't official yet. So, I mean, the next couple hours went by really slow. And and when I finally got the confirmation, it was, it was everything from, from laughing and then, and then tears when I called my parents because they were just out of control. My mom dropped the phone and and she was falling and, (laughs) And it was a great feeling. It was just everything had, had come together at, at a time I had least expected it. And uh, here I am now, a couple of weeks later, got an amazing opportunity with the Padres, and, and it turned out for the best. And for people who haven't read the book, can you tell us a little bit about your backstory? And I'm sure Santos hasn't read the book, so this will all be new to him, too. <laughs> so, <laughs> He'll get around easy. to it. Easy, I read it. I read it, guys. <laughs> everything uh, kind of uh, leading up to when we signed you and why you were sitting there waiting for someone to call. Absolutely. Um, in college, I had two pretty big surgeries. Uh, my freshman year, I had labrum surgery that it put me out for the first season and a half. And then when I came back, I, I still wasn't fully back. The velocity was down. The performance wasn't there. And then I had a few nice runs where I got to play in Cape Cod and, you know, a couple summer leagues where I played really well. And, and right when I thought I was getting back, I had knee surgery. So then going into my senior season, I was, I was still recovering. Uh, my first month was really rocky. 
but then all of a sudden the velocity started to come back. The off-speed pitches started to work better, and uh, I went 6-1 and one in A-10 play. I thought maybe there would be a chance. There were a few scouts who had you know, given me information, asked me some questions. But, I mean, other than that, it was it was pretty dry. And then, you know, draft day come and, you know, went, and then it was men's ball for me. I went home. I was I got a job. I was playing in a men's league just trying to figure out if, you know, if there was a future for me out there, I went to a Philadelphia Phillies tryout and and they basically told me they liked what they saw, but I was a little too old for them to follow since I was out of college and I thought it was over. And then all of a sudden you guys uh, sent me a message on Twitter and and my world changed. Except you still drove a pretty hard bargain and you needed the, you needed the plane (laughs) fare to get out there. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I did. Um, Just literally a week before I had, I had paid for my uh, semester of grad school. <laughs> if you guys would have if hit, hit me up about seven days sooner, I probably could have swung the airfare. I want to. I want to. I have two details from that uh, uh, from your college career that I I think I remember, but I want you to to remind me if I do. When you came back from your second surgery it was your senior year. It's when you know scouts might have been looking at you to draft you, and you said your velocity was down. As I recall, you're you work in like the sort of mid upper eighties generally. As I recall, didn't you tell me that you came back and you were throwing like like your fastball was like seventy for the first couple outings? Yeah, that was with both my both of my surgeries. Actually, my shoulder surgery when I came back my sophomore year. Um, originally, I wasn't supposed to throw at all that season, but we had a few injuries. My arm was feeling good. My my first fastball registered at seventy two, and I struck a kid out on a fifty six mile an hour curveball. <laughs> and uh, that's not something you see. And then. It started to climb as the summer went on, but then after my second surgery, I, I was cleared a few weeks before the season, but I didn't want to spend time rehabbing. I was ready to go, and, and it was low to mid-70s at first. What is it like to be on the mound facing D1 hitters and you're you know throwing 72 with your fastball? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, when I was a sophomore, it was scary, but by the time my, my senior year rolled around, I felt like I knew how to pitch. Uh, that's one thing the injuries did for me. It was more of like a puzzle, a chess match maybe, where I knew I wasn't going to beat them with velocity. I wasn't going to get a lot of swing and misses on my fastball. But if I could change speeds, change looks, throw a couple of different pitches, you know, get them leaning, get them back, get them, you know, a little uncomfortable that, that I could compete. So it was, it was fun. It was challenging, but definitely at times a little bit stressful. And then the other thing that I remember, and correct me, I might have a lot of details here wrong, but the men's league you were in was, you know, a fairly competitive men's league as far as men's leagues go. And and as I as I recall, you had just insane performances there. Like like you had like I don't know. Do, do you remember what your numbers were in that league? Yeah. Um. So the men's league, it's really interesting because I sit in the middle of the Atlantic League, an independent ball league, and uh, a lot of the guys who get cut from that league have played affiliated ball, and they'll find their way to one of the teams. A bunch of D1 guys who don't want to go away for the summer and play summer league, they stay home. So, I mean, like our team, we had four or five Division One guys in the lineup and two on the pitching staff. And so it was, it was competitive at the top. It fell off towards the bottom. But, um, yeah, in that league, I think I went 45 or 50 innings and I gave up, I think, one run. <laughs> It was, and they don't even they don't do an earned run average. They just do a run average, and I think that one was unearned. <laughs> so, uh, for either of you guys, or both of you guys, did you have to get physicals when you signed? And if so, what did that involve? Santos, did you get one? Yeah, uh, it was a pretty intense uh, physical. It was like uh, 
Well, I'm from Texas, so we have a lot of like uh, farm animals. Uh-huh. And it was like basically they put me up on a table like a goat and would just like jerk every every limb of my body to make sure everything was working. Huh. Did they get I don't know MRIs? Or was it was any of it invasive or was it all just kind of prodding you from the outside? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, mm-hmm. they would uh, jerk my arm, jerk my leg, jerk my ankle, make <laughs> sure everything was good. I, I actually entered the season with a twisted ankle, uh-huh. but obviously I don't want to tell them. <laughs> when they were jerking my ankle, I was like, damn it. <laughs> Maybe they jerked your ankle too hard in the physical, and that's why. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so basically, as long as you can bend your limbs without screaming, you can pass a physical? Yep, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Was yours similar, Dylan? Uh, mine actually wasn't. It was. It may have lasted seven minutes. It, I came in, oh. they strapped me up to an EKG machine, and they ran the results. I guess something looked funny, and they were they were kind of looking at each other and like, eh, we'll send it to a specialist. If you don't hear anything, you're good. And then they brought in a, a team doctor, and he tested my knee since I had had surgery, and then he checked my range of motion. And in my left arm, I'd had trouble with external rotation, and I was just coming off a week where I threw 18, 19 innings, and he said, well, how's it feel? And I was like, well, I can throw. And he's like, ah, that's all that matters. There's three weeks left. You'll get through it. Uh-huh. So <laughs> so all of last season, Sam and I were trying to figure out the level of competition in the Pacific Association and how it compared to various levels in affiliated ball. And we were trying to look at guys going back and forth from one to the next and how they did. And you both have a different perspective on that now from having pitched in actual leagues. So Santos, what did you think of the Pioneer League batters? Were they significantly better, and if so, how? Uh, well, I wouldn't say it was too much better. It's just the fields were a lot smaller, uh-huh. so you couldn't really, you know, you left the pitch up, it was going to get hit a long way, or you made a mistake, a hanging curveball, they were going to go a long way. I w- uh, the competition, I would say the Pioneer guys, they were just more free swingers. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you had a plan going, they really didn't. Uh-huh. So if you act like you throw an outside fastball in the Pacific League, they're like they don't uh, they don't know what to do with it, so they'll just take it. And the Pioneer guys, since they're free swingers, they'll swing at it and, and bloop it over first base. A lot of those parks up there are at altitude too, right? Uh yeah. I don't, I'm not sure how high, but I mean every 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 park had a mountain in the background. <laughs> so did you face anybody there that you came away thinking? Like, that dude's going to be a star, you know, 25 years from now, I'm going to tell people I played with him? Uh, The center fielder from Ogden, but I'm not sure his name. I know his last name was Peters, and he was like, I think he was all-star first and second half. And uh, in the second half, I think uh, he ended the second half batting like 450, I think it was. Hmm. Yeah. Jay Peters, Dodgers yeah. fourth-round pick this year. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I mean, the the... Your team ERA was six, basically. So there were a lot of yeah. runs scored in that league. Yeah. And Dylan, you only had time to get into a, a few games in the California League, but what were your impressions? Um, well, I mean, yeah, I only I only threw in three games, but I got, I got to watch about two and a half, three weeks worth. And uh, there's a lot of really good hitters there. I think it's it's similar to independent baseball to where guys are very aggressive against fastballs but they don't make as many mistakes. Uh, you know, if you leave a ball just a little bit up, it's going to it's gonna be hit on a line. It's going to be hit hard. There's no room for error. 
and, and similar to, to Santos, uh, some small parks, and then there was one or two big ones. But you, you would just see guys taking free hacks on any fastball they could get, taking a lot of breaking balls early and then uh, trying to adjust late. But they're, they're sitting there trying to hit fastballs. Everyone in the, the organization that I talked to was, was telling me that, you know, be prepared. It's, it's a good hitting league. If you throw a fastball and you miss, it's going to get hit. So you better be ready to use your other pitches, which was a good tip. And when you walk into a minor league clubhouse or if you spend some time around the team, to what extent are you aware of sort of who the, the prospects are? Because, you know, if you walk into the Pacific Association clubhouse, you know that there aren't really any prospects for the most part. But if you walk into a California League clubhouse, there are guys, you know, like Santos just mentioned in the Pioneer League, guys who were high round draft picks recently, maybe got signing bonuses, maybe they're on lists ranked somewhere. So how do you find out about that stuff if you do find out about that stuff? Well, I feel like if, if they want if they want to be viewed as as you know someone who who's a really high pick, they almost it's the way they act. It uh, a lot of the guys with me were great. Uh, everyone was down to earth, but they would talk about you know some other guys they had heard of or, or guys in the other dugout, and just there are some people who who know they're destined or believe they're destined for big things, and they'll they'll let you know. But I I thought that with the Padres and like Elsinore, it, it was a great group of guys who were at the end of a 140-game season and, and were unbelievable towards me. The only way I really found out who some of the bigger guys were were they would joke around, like, asking players, like, hey, why didn't you buy the spread today? You know, you signed for a million, like, stuff like that. Uh-huh. And you would slowly start to realize who the guys were in the locker room that the Padres had money invested in. But then you you just couldn't tell when you were in, when you were in the, the dugout. It was just – it was a great group of guys. I think I got really lucky. From the coaching staff to the team, a lot of people kept telling me that, uh, you know, they've been in minor league baseball for a year or two, maybe three, and, and they hadn't been around a group of guys like this. So I think I think I got lucky. It must be so, like, I mean, the difference between, you know, a first-round pick and a 30th-round pick is, like, literally, like, 2,000 times the signing bonus. Like, the, the difference in how, like, kind of rich and famous a first-round pick is compared to a 30th-round pick is unimaginably large. It must be like a real challenge for clubhouses, I would think, to uh, to manage that. Yeah, uh, like we had um, we had Michael Geddes. I guess he was a second round pick uh, two years ago for the Padres, and uh, I guess a lot of people I I had read up online. A lot of people said he was one of the toolsiest players in the draft. And uh, I mean, he's only twenty years old, so he's he's still you know a baby, but. He's he's already in high A. He's playing well. He's batting leadoff. He's he's hitting 300. And um, you know he he was just one of the guys. You could tell that you know people would would give him crap and just like tease him and tell him he has to go to instructionals or or you know he he better be buying you know the road trip spread next week because there's nothing on Thursday. And he's he's just kind of enjoying it and trying to fit in because I feel like there's also a pressure on them being you know a top pick they're expected to perform they sign for a lot more money but they they also need need to be able to mesh well with the guys and what were the crowds like at each of your games santos i mean was it uh, pacific association level attendance or or better than that uh it was a little better uh, we would probably at home we'd average about three thousand. Oh okay. wow lowest wow. maybe maybe 800 uh-huh and when we went to places like Billings, Ogden, Orem, even uh, Grand Junction, like we had 
three, four thousand. Yeah, <laughs> so it was, it was a nice that's turnout. A yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's like you know, uh, ten times a Stoppers game. I, the game I went to that Dylan pitched in was a fairly Pacific Association type crowd, so I assumed that was it all the way in. But I guess you're further out in the middle of uh, the country, middle of nowhere. Yeah, <laughs> so there's no major league team around there. The closest yeah. one's Seattle from ours. And that's like a nine-hour drive for them. Cause they're like, in Montana, Idaho, and uh, well, the Colorado one is the one that I was actually surprised because it's two hours from Denver. It's all Montana, Idaho, and and Utah. So I mean, there's no baseball there. So did the community really? Um, was the community really into you guys? Did you like? Were, would you get recognized? Like the first month, we were huge to them. Like they would see us on the streets and try to take pictures with us. But after our, uh, I believe it was like a 13-game losing streak, yeah, they wanted no part of us. But they still show up <laughs> to our games, which was good. And and you hear a lot about that adjustment to the, the minor league life and being in a rural area, which is new for some people. And obviously that adjustment is probably more difficult for people who are coming from a different country or don't speak the language. But, you know, you live in Houston. You live in a very populated place. And Helena, Montana is not a huge place. So what sort of uh, adjustment was that for you? Uh, well, I mean, it was pretty much like living in uh, Sonoma for another three months. We uh, we had bikes to go to the field. We uh, had a couple of little bars that, that, that they would go to. I mean, it was pretty much the same as Sonoma uh-huh. besides the, the, the wine. <laughs> were there any instructions that you were pitching under? I guess either of you, but... You know, you often hear about a team will want this pitcher to work on this pitch, and so they will take a pitch away, and, you know, you're not allowed to throw a certain pitch at certain times. Did you have anything like that, Santos? They didn't allow two seams until you get to low A. And is the thinking behind that just that they want you to work on other things, that that's an easier pitch to pick up, or...? Uh, They wanted everyone to be able to control and throw the four seam wherever they want. Uh Uh-huh. Instead of trying to uh, pitch around guys, they wanted you to come right after them. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they hated walks, so if you were allowed to throw a two-seam, you had to be able to control your four-seam and throw it, uh, I think it was like 75% strikes. <laughs> so yeah. did you did you abide by that? I mean, was there much cheating going on? <laughs> For... So I would still throw it once in a while. But not that often, huh? Say it's uh-huh. a change-up. Yeah, no. Uh-huh. And Dylan, I guess by the time you got there, they just wanted to see what you had, probably. Yeah, for me, it was they just wanted to have video. They wanted to see my pitches and just see how I worked. And they just wanted to get video. So they told me just to do what I had been doing all year. There weren't any restrictions. And I, I know on the whole of a pitching staff, they, they really didn't restrict them much. I knew there would be some guys that would be working on pitches. And, and you know, the pitching coach would suggest, hey, maybe you throw that two or three times tonight certain situations just to see how it's working i know you've been working on it in a bullpen but similar to what santo said they just they didn't want walks if, if you were walking guys that was the biggest thing because in you know minor league baseball they're not concerned about winning they get this schedule each day where they're they're told how many pitches each pitcher can throw and if you're only supposed to throw one inning 12 pitches you can't walk you can't afford to walk a guy or you're not going to be able to finish that inning and reach your pitch count I want to go back to to Santos. How much else was your pitch selection or the way that you were pitching different than it would be if you were focused single-mindedly on, you know, getting the batter out and winning? Like, I'm curious how much of a handicap it is or 
I mean, not a handicap, but how much of a, how much it affects your stats or how much it affects your success to have them kind of working on your development and assessing you rather than, um, you know, getting batters out like it, like it would have been in the, in the Pacific Association? Uh, I want to say, like, the biggest difference was, like, I, I like to throw curveballs ahead of the count. And since they were so fastball-oriented, they wanted me to challenge guys in the first pitch. And that kind of hurt me a little bit. And then uh, three two counts, I like to throw two-seam slider curveball or something. I don't like to come right at guys. The, the biggest thing was I gave up two three zero home runs, where in the Pacific League I would have thrown two-seams. Yeah. And just threw it right down the middle, but a two-seam. But they wanted me to go four seam, and like I said, these guys were free swingers. I think one game we were losing nine to nine to one in the eighth, and the guy swung at a three zero fastball. <laughs> that's that's well. I mean, like I was gonna say, that's absurd. But I guess that dude's playing to move up to the next level too, and that home run shows up on his stats. Did you? Were all the pitches called from the bench? Uh, no, the catcher called. Okay. Hmm. Could you shake? Were you allowed to shake off? Uh, you were allowed to shake, but it was like basically frowned upon. Yeah. Okay. Huh. And did they try to reassure you? Did they say, you know, we're not looking at the stats, we're looking at the process, we're looking at the stuff, so that you wouldn't worry about these sorts of things? Well, in my situation, uh, like every uh, my head coach was a catcher. He made it all the way to uh, AAA. So most of the time, whenever like act like a guy would give up a home, like our starter would give up a home run. The catcher would get an airful. Uh-huh. So, like, they would understand, like, it wasn't the right pitch to throw or something. But yeah. for the most part, yeah, they were just saying uh, they're just trying to get through the day. Uh-huh. And I meant to ask when uh, when Dylan was talking about the kind of hierarchy in the clubhouse and the difference between guys with big bonuses and, and guys without them. With the Stompers, it was always a, a big deal if you were acting big league, if, you know, whatever you had <laughs> kind of fancy gear and you looked like you were trying to look like a higher level pro than you were that sort of thing you would get ragged on constantly for that is it the same in the california league how does being big league manifest itself and is it okay to be big league if you actually have a pretty good shot of being a big leaguer if you wear like uh, anything padres into the locker room each day they all say, hey, you play for the Padres? Like, wow, that's awesome, man. Like, how, what, how much did Dylan, you sign for, you know? Dylan, what if you wear something uh, Orioles into the locker room? Oh, no. You just can't. And I, I got whittled down to three shirts by the time I got out there. I couldn't. I didn't have anything left to wear. I only had one hat and three T-shirts with me that weren't Orioles related. <laughs> but it, uh. It, they definitely, um, they're guys, you know, driving nice cars in the parking lot and wearing nice clothes and, and fancy watches. And they were really big into uh, Lululemon, which is like, I guess, a recent brand over the last couple of years yeah. of clothing and like athletic gear. And uh, the guys more or less like complimented each other. They were more, they were jealous when someone would come in with something new, almost like, like, you know, I want to go buy that or, or I hope I get the money to, to start buying things like you are. It was it was definitely like there were jokes at times where, you know, people would call each other big league, but you could tell that um, the guys who may have not signed for as much money, they were almost afraid to step on toes sometimes. So things were more joking than serious a lot, which, which is nice. But I mean, cause you know, there's still 20, 20 year, two year old guys just trying to figure out how the, how the whole thing works and they don't want to step on any toes and, you know, get a bad rep. 
And could either of you pick up on any or, you know, is it something that people on the team talked about possibly picking up some unequal treatment of players based on, you know, where they were drafted, how big a prospect they are? Are they used differently in games? Are coaches devoting more time to them, that sort of thing? Or could you not really even tell based on that? Uh, you you couldn't really tell just the fact that uh, they had to give everyone an opportunity and the coaches don't really make the lineup. It's more of the organization. Hmm. So the coaches have little to no say in what goes in the lineup. And the only time uh, is like whenever a pitcher is given a, a thrown too many pitches in one inning. That's the only time he has the opportunity to make a change. Uh-huh. Or a guy doesn't slide into second and makes it look bad. That's the only time they really take out a player. It's more on the organization that makes the lineup. So you guys played in the Pacific Association last summer, so you are used to not making very much money playing baseball, but minor leaguers not making very much money playing baseball is kind of a hot-button issue these days. People actually start lawsuits over this. So how did this work for you guys? Did you both have host families? Were your meals mostly taken care of? And what does a, a minor leaguer make at those levels? I know my my situation's a lot different. I was only there three weeks, but um, we had host families. We're one of the only teams in their organization that has uh, host families for everyone. Uh-huh. So I mean, not having to pay room and board helps out a lot. And then um, I mean, the, the salary was was double what I was making in independent ball, so that 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 helped. That went a long way. And when yeah. it came to meals, different than indie ball, we'd have meals before and after games. So, so lunch and dinner was, was mostly taken care of. And especially when, when guys were rehabbing, almost the whole time I was there, there was a big leaguer rehabbing, and they would take care of, of the meals for us. So mm-hmm. the expenses were, were nice. They, uh, they took care of a lot of things for us. Uh-huh. So, I mean, I think I had a really great setup. What big leaguers were there when you were there? John Jay, uh-huh. um, Tyson Ross, Jameel uh-huh. Weeks. Huh. Um, uh, I feel like I might be missing another one. There might have been one more. All right. And uh, Santos, how did that work for you? So we would make 1100 with taxes. It was like 950 And then um, we had to pay 150 We We got meals before every game. After uh, batting practice, we'd get like sandwiches or protein shakes. And then after the games. Uh-huh. So were you able to to stretch it to what you needed? Did guys on the team talk about it a lot? Were are, you know like it's like a national news story, but at that level, are are people talking about it and upset about it, or you know wishing that things were different? Well, most of the guys live off their signing bonus, so yeah. most of the guys don't complain. Only a couple of the free agent guys, like me, and I think it was like four others, uh-huh. were living off our paycheck. Uh-huh. But, I mean, we didn't have too many expenses to spend the money, and it was such a small town. There wasn't a lot of stuff to do. It wasn't the only place we'd go eat was, like, Buffalo Wild Wings. Cause uh-huh. That's the only thing open after the games. Uh-huh. We wake up at 2. We wake up at 1, 2 in the afternoon, so we don't really have time to go out and do stuff around town. So one of the, the big concerns for us last season was that we had no resources, no infrastructure. We weren't really able to make players better in any way. We were just trying to get through each day. And there is an observation in the book from Jared Mochizuki, who uh, pointed out that, you know, once you're in affiliated ball, in theory, at least, you are distancing yourself from an equivalent player in indie ball every day because you are 
getting better attention, better instruction, better nutrition. So just in any, just in every way, you are getting, you know, closer to, to major league attention than you would be if you were playing somewhere else. So did you guys feel that you were getting better, that, you know, you were kind of getting that quality of instruction every day and that you were, uh, I mean, Dylan, you weren't there that long, but that, you know, you were better at the end of the experience than you had been at the beginning? Yeah, I feel like like every day you were getting a step closer where, where an independent ball, I mean, you could lift, you could run, but no one was, was forcing you or guiding you. Uh, there was there wasn't a lot of direction where I mean I know I was there for a short time but every day there was some sort of lifting or running or supervised like throwing routine so you felt like you were being monitored and the fact that you were being monitored and there were things for you to achieve each day made it feel like you were getting a step closer for me it was a little bit different it was it was a long season for me um, with independent ball it, it's a grind you know no pitch counts sometimes you're throwing on weird days rest or, or you know after 12 hours of travel and uh, my, my arm and my body were shot towards the end of the experience and uh, they they did a great job just just keeping me fresh and keeping me rested trying to uh, to get me through the last couple weeks and what about you Santos did you feel that not being able to throw certain pitches actually made you better with the other ones or were there other things going on that were helping you improve as a player it more gave me more uh more confidence in my fastball uh-huh. because after the first couple outings where I was going after him but I, I I was very hesitant I was making too many mistakes but by the end of the season I was able to throw my fastball whenever I wanted wherever I wanted and it wasn't much of a problem. So I wouldn't say it hurt me. It more made me a better pitcher. And just like an indie ball, I wouldn't have thrown the four seam in those situations. And now I can. It, it just it just made me a better pitcher. And that's something I wouldn't have done in indie ball. I would have thrown just as uh, comfortable as I, as I was. So, uh, so Dylan, I saw your first start, and it was phenomenal and brilliant and amazing. And then the second start was uh, was very difficult. The pitching line, at least, was uh, difficult to see. How much? W- I'm curious what the difference was. Was the difference with you? Was the difference between the batters? Was the difference uh, just luck, balls falling in? Uh, how did you feel about that second start, especially coming after the first one? Uh, I, I think it was a little bit of a combination of, of a couple of those things. They they knew I was having trouble recovering after the first start, um, and I had talked with them that uh, it, it had just been a long summer for me, and without, you know, the guidance and, and the lifting and the running, they, they weren't surprised that my, my body was falling apart. You know, my velocity was was down a little bit, and I was having trouble consistently commanding some pitches. And they uh, when I went out for that outing, I was just as confident and – I think the first three hitters were ground balls through the four and six holes. And it was just kind of a, here we go. And then an errant throw and then a walk and then, you know, a bloop single to left. And I reached my pitch count and uh, the coach came out to me and he was a long time independent ball player. And he's like, you know what, you're going to have days like this. We'll, we'll talk about it after the game. And then they pulled me in after the game and they're like, you know what, you made some pitches. You got squeezed a little bit. Nothing was hit hard. I think it was all six singles. They said, you just reached a pitch count that we can't let you surpass in an inning. So we had to take you out. And we, we know that, like, it, it's definitely not what you wanted. But I wouldn't, like, I wouldn't take it too hard or get down about this. Like, it was, it was nothing that, you know, stat, like you said earlier, they, they're not concerned about stats. They were more concerned about development. And they knew I was, I was trying to grind through the rest of the season. And I think that they were just trying to reassure me that, that you know, I, I shouldn't dwell 
on on those couple batters. It was it was a nightmare though for me. It was one of the longest innings I've been a part of, and it just seemed like everything was a couple feet out of reach, and and we were just one play away, and we just couldn't get that play. And I guess Santos, uh, similar question, but the flip side, there was a <clears throat> there was a run of about six outings or so where you were just absolutely dominant, striking out, um, you know, a batter to every every inning, and uh, you didn't allow any runs or really even any hits for like uh, four or five outings. How, was there something different then that you felt, and how did you feel about those outings, especially after having, you know, struggled initially? Uh, well, most of the games were away, so I felt a little bit more confident and going right after guys, which how I usually pitch. And it wasn't. Uh, I just felt good. Everything was working. I was spotting up everything. It's just how I was throwing in uh, independently. So, Dylan, the, I think you, the first person that you met in the Padres organization, or, or close to it, was Mark Pryor. Which is one of those moments where if, if I got signed by a big league team, that would be the moment where I thought, oh my gosh, like this is, this is real, this is amazing, that, you know, they can never take this away from me. Uh, do each of you have some moment of the season where it, like, you, you'll take that with you forever as like, you know, remembering that you actually made it there and that it was, you know, different and also the same as you were expecting? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it may be the Mark Pryor moment. I, I grew up watching I mean Cubs games were on right after school for me and I would watch it before I would do my homework and I saw this guy pitch and put everything out there and battle through all these injuries and and similar things that I've gone through you know and I'm talking to this guy on the phone and he's asking me about my hometown because he knows a guy who played independent ball there and I'm I'm talking to this guy who's been an idol of mine that you know I have no idea I have anything in common with and he's just uh, congratulating me for for joining the organization and telling me how excited he is for me to be there. And then after my first start, he, he shot me a text. And I'm like, this is Mark freaking Pryor texting me right now. Like, this is, this is absolutely crazy. This is, that's, that was just what made it truly special to me was you're, you're part of something bigger where an independent ball, you know, there's, there, you don't get promoted. You either stay or you go home normally. And it's like you're you're a part of an organization, and the guy at the top of the chain is taking his time to reach out to you and you know say nice work tonight. And this is a guy that was one of your heroes growing up, and I I don't know if, if many things top that. Oh, I want to say uh, the one time I I like just felt like I made it. It was uh, we were playing in Grand Junction, and my my mom actually went out to see me. She was there for two days, and it just uh. I told the coach if I can throw one of those two days. And they were like, yeah, sure. Uh, we love to do that when family members are, are in town. And I ended up striking out the side with like 10 pitches. <laughs> and uh, I just looked up and all the crowd was like kind of booing me. And my parents, my mom and my sister were in the middle just cheering. It was a pretty exciting moment for me. <laughs> So lastly, you guys have both been on the verge of giving up baseball probably multiple times in the last few years. So do you have any idea what the future holds? Are you planning to continue pursuing this or have you not made up your mind or do you not know yet? I, I have no clue what's happening, to be honest. <laughs> they, um, they told, you know, they signed me up to, for a lifting program online. They've been sending me emails, but like, we never had a conversation at the end because, I mean, my coaching staff's not the ones who make the decision. Right. If if there is a future for me, which I, I mean, I would I would love to get an opportunity to go spring training 
have a you know, healthy off season with some workouts and just and see where it takes me. But as of now, I have I have no clue. I don't know how long the waiting process is. You know, I know they have instructs and the Dominican instructs and then the fall league and free agency. And I just I'm not quite sure where my future lies. But you know, I would I would love to have an off season and give it all I got for spring training and just you know see what happens. Yeah, pretty pretty much the same thing. You, you uh, the coaches, you know, they just give you the congratulations on ending the season and uh, hope to see you in the spring. But they don't really tell you anything because they they're not the ones who make the the calls. So I mean, as uh, Dylan said, I I'd be more than happy to go play another year. Uh, well, I saw the spring training field and I would love to play a couple games there. Uh-huh. But uh. We'll just see what the Brewers decide. And are you guys looking for off-season jobs now? Uh, well, I have uh, I have like six accounting uh, jobs lined up. Uh-huh. The only thing is I don't know which one to take because I don't want to burn any bridges. Yeah. Just in case mm-hmm. I have to go back in March. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna probably gonna take the one that uh, hurts me least in the long run. <laughs> Do you know what you're doing, Dylan? Uh, no, that's the, that's the hardest hardest part is um, I'm, I'm unsure about my future so I've actually looked into uh, now that I have my master's I was thinking about substitute teaching locally mm. just it would be good hours and then I'd still be able to work out and throw before and after so I'm looking for a job that would, would be somewhat flexible and allow me to still train because mm-hmm. uh, kind of similar to Santos I don't want to take a full-time offer and then burn a bridge with a with a great company in case you know I would get the call to go back in the spring. Yeah, that is tough. Do you know what uh, most guys on the team do if they're not living off a big bonus? A lot of coaching or that sort of thing in the off season. Yeah, some guys do coaching and lessons, which you know I've been looking into. Uh, there's different facilities that'll take different amount of, of money out of your lessons, but um, it's just uh, that's also a huge time commitment, whether you're going to be coaching a team on the weekends or, or this or that. But um, a lot of guys just do part-time work in the offseason to try to make ends meet and spend time away from home, you know, with, with family or girlfriends and loved ones and stuff like that. But it's it's definitely a grind. All right. Well, we wish you the best, of course, and we're really happy that you got this chance. And uh, we thank you both for coming on. So people... If you want to uh, reach out to Santos or Dylan yourselves, you can. You can find them on Twitter. They will not clog your timelines. They tweet about once every couple months or something. Basically, when they get signed by a big league team, they might tweet about it. (laughs) Other than that, no. So uh, Santos is at Saldivar Santos, and Dylan is at StoopKid underscore 24. So good talking to you guys. Santos, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. And Dylan, good talking to you too. No, absolutely. Thank you guys for everything. All right, so that is it for today. If you want to read more about Santos's and Dylan's backstories, you can buy our book. It's called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, Our Wild Experiment Building a New Kind of Baseball Team. You can find out much more information about it on the website, theonlyrulesithastowork.com. Please rate and review it on Amazon Goodreads if you enjoy it. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have done so already... Hayden Kane, Nick Raimondi, Ryan Metters, Joe Timmerman, and Paul Butta. Thank you. 
You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You can get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription to the Play Index by going to baseballreference.com and using the coupon code BP when you sign up. I'll have an episode of the Ringer MLB show up later today, so you can also listen to that to tide you over till next time. And you can contact me and Sam via email at podcastbaseballperspectus.com or by messaging us through Patreon. Thanks for listening. That is it for this week. We hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back next week. Fresh out the kitchen. Mama rolling that body, got every man in here wishing. Sipping on coke and rum. I'm like, so what? I'm drunk. It's the freaking weekend, baby. I'm about to have me some fun. Come on, girl, we off in this jeep. Morgan, man, those are.